0: Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Supported by Radio 3CR on Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne and broadcast across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Bec Horridge. I've produced the show, but I'm going to hand over to your host today, Janet Salisbury. She's the founder of the Women's Climate Congress. The Women's Climate Congress offers a lot. In a nutshell, they say that it's time for women's leadership to help turn the tide of culture from polarised discord to collaboration and cooperation. We propose that nurture of life in the natural world and care for the earth must be at the centre of every policy and government decision. Oh, God, that's so true, eh? Hey? Women's Climate Congress hosts regular online women's climate conversations. And this one's called Women Bringing New Agendas to COP28. And COP is what we call the global climate meetings, happening regularly, desperately trying to bring down global heating, now called global boiling. And the conversation today is Natalie Sifuma, Head of Communications from She Changes Climate. Anna Reynolds, she's the Lord Mayor of Hobart, and she'll be talking about the Global Covenant of Mayors for Climate and Energy, and Katrine Geyer, Environmental Advisor for the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom.
1: For those of you who don't know me, I'm Janet Salisbury and I am the founder of the Women's Climate Congress here in Australia. and We're a movement of women who formed in uh, January 2020 after the massive bushfires that we'd had here in Australia over that summer. And we've been putting our network and our movement over the past three and a half years. Um, And we have many members now all over Australia and we have quite a lively network overseas as well, which has been very exciting. And through many, many of these sorts of conversations with women here in Australia and overseas, we have uh, developed a Women's Climate Congress Charter for the Change which is a a set of themed actions that we've distilled from the conversations with thousands of women that we've had. There are three actions there around emergency, very urgent actions that we think are needed right now to secure the climate. And we'll be talking about some of those sorts of things in our conversation tonight. And then there are other actions there which are around human and planetary well-being. I'm not going to say a lot about the Charter today because we're, we've got our speakers here to talk about increasing ambition going into the international uh, COP meeting and other international fora. But you can find it on our website, and I do commend you to go and have a look at it there. It hasn't been really great news around the world lately. Seems to be one catastrophic climate event after another coming on the news in Canada. We've had terrible wildfires. In uh, Hawaii, uh, there was a terrible fire there. And we also have dire warnings here in Australia of potential bad bushfire seasons coming up again this summer and sometimes over the next few years, probably. The UN Secretary General has warned that the world has now moved from a period of global warming into global boiling. And our eyes are very much on the next international climate conference that's coming up, which is COP. 28, which is going to be held in the UAE in December 2023, and it is really time for the world to be taking very urgent actions to reduce carbon emissions and to bring about a just transition and adaptation measures before it really does get to be too late. And these catastrophic events, start, um, well, we know that there will be more of them because we already have enough global warming to have affected the climate. So we're living in very urgent times. And today I'm joined by three women who are part of an international chorus of women and others bringing new ambitious agendas to COP and other international forums in an attempt to secure the climate. And it is really amazing to be part of a global movement of women who are really raising their voices and standing up and bringing these concerns to these international meetings. Uh, I'm going to Just very briefly introduce our three wonderful women that are joining us today. And then I'm going to ask them to sort of introduce themselves a little bit more. And I'll say a bit more about that in a minute. But just to briefly introduce, we have with us today uh, Catherine Geyer, who is joining us from London. And she is the environment advisor at the International Secretariat of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which was founded in 1915, and is one of the longest-standing women's peace organizations. It has consultative status with the UN, offices in New York and Geneva, and about, um, I think, around about 40 country chapters. And Wilkes works towards a vision of permanent peace built on foundations of freedom, justice, nonviolent conflict resolution, human rights, and equality for all. And these principles also underpin what has become known as feminists' foreign policy. And I think we'll hear a bit more about that for, from Katrin later. Incidentally, I should note, as I always do, that the foundation story of Wilts in 1915 was my inspiration for starting the Women's Climate Congress to bring some of these same principles to action on climate change and environmental management. And actually, our Charter for Change is in part modelled on the resolutions from that 1915 event. You can also look that up, look up Wilts and their founding story in 1915. So I'd also like to introduce Councillor Anna Reynolds, who's joining us from Hobart in Lutruwita, Tasmania. And Anna has been the Lord Mayor of Hobart since November 2018. And as Lord Mayor, she is a member of the Global Covenant of Mayors for Climate and Energy, which is the world's largest alliance of local climate leadership and it represents about 12,500 cities and local governments. I was absolutely amazed, actually, by that when I read how many cities and local governments are involved in this network. And Anna was the first mayor in the world to pledge support for the Mayor's Declaration for a Fossil Fuel non proliferation Treaty, and so she's going to tell us a little bit more about that. And then I'd like to introduce Natalie Sifuma, who is joining us from Kenya. And uh, Natalie is a communications expert, And she has a wide range of experience across public and environmental health, education, gender equality, and climate awareness. Uh, She's the head of communications at She Changes Climate, which is an international uh, women's movement formed in 2020, a very similar time to uh, when the Women's Climate Congress was formed. And uh, they promote the crucial role of women in climate leadership including through their 50-50 vision campaign for equal representation of women in all the COP negotiations. And uh, they also advocate for a number of other um, issues around justice and um, ending of fossil fuels, which we'll probably hear a bit more about from Natalie a bit later as well. Those are our three wonderful speakers. But I'm also now going to ask them to introduce themselves a little bit and in a sort of somewhat personal way, because I have already mentioned in my introduction about the rather catastrophic times that we're living in uh, at the moment. And in fact, I had in the last couple of days written an article about how this is making me feel um, at the moment. And that article was published yesterday in a media outlet here in Australia called Women's Agenda. So it certainly has impacted me greatly. And I'm not a person who's given to expressing anger about climate uh, action because I I feel anger isn't a very productive emotion. And I've spent my public life trying to promote collaboration and dialogue, which I still will continue Mm -hmm. to do. But just at the moment, I feel, um, yeah, it's difficult not to feel a bit angry and worked up about uh, what's happening. So I thought I would ask each of our speakers to spend a couple of minutes telling us a bit about themselves and about how they feel as women leaders at this time. Katrina, maybe I could go to you first.
2: Sure, thank you so much for having me. It's a great honor to be with all of you today and across many of you across the globe on the other side. So I'm based in London, but originally from Germany. And uh, to your question, you know, how how I'm feeling as a woman working for climate justice, I feel very mixed emotions. And as you already outlined, the the general landscape looks extremely bleak, with those most responsible not doing nearly enough, and with the ecological crisis rapidly deteriorating. And as you mentioned, we see this right now all the time in different parts of the world. However, I do also feel a sense of optimism and hope because of grassroots communities feminists and climate activists all over the world resisting and organizing and mobilizing and i think we do need to cherish all of these examples that we do see all the time where we see that you know our joint action and collective power does work and i was most recently so happy to read about the referendum in ecuador where an overwhelming majority of ecuadorians voted in favor of a ban on oil development in the Yasuni Amazon, which is one of the most biodiverse hotspots in the world, if not the most biodiverse um, area in the world, and this initiative was led by indigenous peoples. So yeah, I'm. It's it's a mixed uh, It's a mixed bag of feelings. But personally, my sense of determination prevails, um, and also gatherings such as these today, you know, help me in remaining steadfast, being just in a virtual space with so many wonderful women and feeling the sense of, you know, joint ambition and vision. So thank you very much for having me here today.
3: Thanks very much. Anna, shall we go to you now? Sure. Hi, everyone. Uh, hi from Hobart. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Hobart is the um, capital of Tasmania at the, in the Southern Ocean and we very much are a centre for Antarctic science and Southern Ocean science. Uh, these scientists live in our community, and we're very aware of their work. I know that this last six months has been unprecedented in terms of the decline in sea ice in uh, Antarctica, and very concerning changes happening in the Southern Ocean, which is the ocean, which is the ocean where all of the world's oceans meet. And it actually is like um, the the process of the sea ice is really like the world's heart in the sense that the sea ice and the salty water that uh, comes from Antarctica actually drives all of the world's ocean currents. We're a little place, but we're very conscious of how close we are to this amazing system that is so important for the world's climate, um, and it is very. Um, very concerning uh, and it does um it does worry me for my children um, about the disruption that um, I think will be part of their lives. Uh, I do think that um we have to stay motivated though and um optimistic about how quickly things can change if we um if we are determined enough and we're clever enough because it's Determination has to be combined with um, being strategic and uh, clever about what we do and uh, the action we take. So we have to, um, yeah, we do have to um, stay on track to make the changes that we need to make and really try and slow down uh, this damage and this change and uh, and and avoid the worst of the climate change um, uh, impact on the future. Thank you. Thanks very much,
4: Anna. And if we can go to Natalie. Sure. Thank you so much, Janet. And hello, everyone. Greetings, very warm greetings from Watamu, which is at the Kenyan coast. My name is Natalie Sifoma. I'm usually based in Nairobi. Just decided to take a trip out of town to one of my favorite places in my country. Um, And what's very interesting about where I am is that it's an area that's defined by baobab trees which are known in local dialect as mbuyu trees. And throughout Africa, you know, baobab trees are known as the tree of life because of how much they give us as people and how sacred they are in um, the Michikenda community here in Kenya. So in many ways, you know, for me, this is an honor to the ancestors who, whose livelihoods, whose good health was sustained by baobab trees. But over and beyond that, I'm the head of communications at She Changes Climate. And uh, in a nutshell, what we do is address the climate crisis by taking head on the leadership challenge, which we believe is one of the reasons why there hasn't been sufficient progress in climate action. And so for me, it's just an honor to be here to be able to share more about what we're doing in the lead up to COP28 and um, just what this means for women, particularly in the global south. Thank you, Janet.
1: Thanks very much, Natalie, and to all our guests for your introductions.
0: You're listening to Earth Matters, broadcast nationally across these stolen and unceded lands via the Community Radio Network. Hear this: Echoes of tomorrow from the age of convenience by Shia's Arjuna.
1: When the cold wind blows, the ocean it's the snow. When the heart sand of the desert starts to blow, we will wake and find the ever changing skies.
0: Don't buy it so Echoes of Tomorrow from the Age of Convenience by Shia Arjuna. And now back to the Women's Climate Conversation hosted by Janet Salisbury. Women bringing new agendas to COP28. I'm
1: now going to sort of turn to topics that each of you bring, your particular interests, and Katrin. Catherine, you attended um, in June the... I think it's the subsidiary body for scientific and technical advice, SB 58, Climate Change Conference in Bonn. And this is one of the lead up conferences the, coming into COP, you know, that is planning the agenda really for COP. And as, a, as the environmental advisor for WILP, WILP actually co-hosted a, a side event Which was on demilitarization, climate justice, and feminist perspectives, and are wanting these considerations to be included in the negotiation agenda at COP28. So, can you tell us a little bit about that work and sort of what sort of response you're getting to it?
2: Yeah, sure. Thank you for that question. I might first take a step back and explain very briefly why we think the issue of demilitarization is so crucial to bring into the climate space. And then I can talk a little bit about what we've been doing specifically this year and going into COP28. So why do we advocate for demilitarization to be included in the COP agenda? Firstly, there is the issue of military emissions. Recent estimates suggest that militaries are responsible for 5.5% of global emissions. And just to put that into perspective, the total global emissions of the civilian aviation industry is just half that at around 2.5%. Similarly, if you were to combine all of the world's militaries, they would be the fourth largest national emitter behind China, the US, and India. In addition to the emissions arising from military activity, there are also emissions from active conflict. If we take the example of the war in Ukraine, Recent estimates calculated that the first year of war has triggered an increase of emissions that amount to the annual output of a country like Belgium. And obviously, this is just one example of one conflict. And we know that there are many more conflicts raging right now all over the world. And so the huge problem is that the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change does not oblige signatories to report on their military missions. States are required to publish their annual greenhouse gas emissions, but the military emissions part is voluntary and most often not included at all. And so what this means is that there's this military emissions gap currently where there's no transparency and therefore no accountability for military's greenhouse gas emissions. The second reason why we're advocating for demilitarization is because military exercises, as well as weapons testing and use, as well as active conflict, they all Destroy ecosystems and they destroy carbon sinks, which includes deforestation. These activities decimate biodiversity. They pollute water, air, and soil. And I just want to mention two important facts here. I think it's important to to note that the environmental damage caused by military exercises and weapons testing during so called peacetime exceeds that of wars themselves. And similarly, military training areas. Cover, cover five to six percent of global land surface, which is roughly the same land surface area as the United States. And so next to the destruction arising from active conflict, there are also constantly military exercises in large expanses of fragile land on the oceans and in airspace. And all of these spaces are bombed and polluted and thereby exacerbate the climate crisis and environmental destruction. Another way that militarization is crucially linked to the climate crisis is military spending. Last year, global military spending rose to an all-time record high of $2.24 trillion. And so why is this an issue? Firstly, it's been found that there is a correlation between an increase in military spending and an increase in emissions. So the higher the military spending, the higher the emissions. Secondly, every dollar that's spent on the military takes away resources to tackle the climate crisis, including gender-transformative climate action. Importantly, the G20, the, so the wealthiest nations in the world, account for the vast majority of military spending at 87 percent. However, many of us, I think, are aware of the fact that those same states still haven't managed... To keep their promise of providing 100 billion US dollars per year of climate finance for low income countries. And between 2013 and 2021, the world's wealthiest nations were spending 30 times more on military power than on tackling the climate crisis. And so, what this means is that wealthy countries currently waste over $2 trillion on powering a death machinery, both for humans and the planet. But at the same time, they're unable to find even a tiny fraction of these resources to tackle the greatest existential threat to humanity. Another aspect of militarization and how it's linked to conflict and climate is the fact that conflict weakens communities and governments' abilities to mitigate and adapt to the climate crisis. So next to the horrendous suffering and pain that arises from conflict, it also destroys the foundation of society's livelihoods. It pushes people into poverty and leads to forced displacement, etc. with disproportionate impacts on marginalized communities, such as women and, and queer people. And so the main takeaway here is that conflict-affected folks aren't really able to prioritize climate issues when they're trying to rebuild their lives from rubble. and. They need to invest scarce resources in the reconstruction and rebuilding of their communities. So, I hope I gave a really um, quick, you know, snapshot of the ways that militarization is exacerbating the ecological crisis, and why we think that it's important to bring in the issue of demotrisation. And I just want to briefly emphasise the concept of demotrisation. So. I think it's clear that, and most people, most would agree that the world's militaries must rapidly and urgently decarbonize, but this frankly looks extremely unlikely to happen at the speed and the urgency at which it is required, as there are currently no viable alternatives for the huge amount of fuel that is currently required for fighter jets, warships and tanks and all of the other um, devices and things that the military requires. But even if the military were green, it would still not be enough to address today's most pressing issues. And why is that? Firstly, green militaries would still consume vast public and natural resources at the detriment of all other pressing issues, including the climate crisis or gender inequalities. Um, Another issue is that militaries have framed the climate crisis as a threat multiplier. And this framing allows for responses to the climate crisis to be securitized and militarized. Um, Think for example of militarized borders to keep refugees away who are fleeing um, climate disaster in their countries. And lastly, uh, we see militaries as violent, oppressive and patriarchal institutions that seek to maintain dominance and control through the threat of or the use of violence. And they are really, um, their purpose is, they exist because they, they seek to maintain the status quo and the status quo is a capitalist and patriarchal system that benefits a small elite and harms the the rest of the world, um, the majority of people as well as the planet. And it seeks to protect precisely those entities and policies that have caused this crisis in the first place.
0: Thanks again to the Women's Climate Congress for making that forum available to produce an Earth Matters. The Women's Climate Congress offers online conversations and more. Check out their website, Women's Climate Congress. Thanks for being with us today, and I'll look forward to being with you again later. Part two of Women Bringing New Agendas to COP28 will be broadcast in a fortnight. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's National Environment Justice Program. I'm Beck Horridge. If you've missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced on the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country. If you'd like to get in contact, you can send us an email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or go to our Facebook or Instagram page. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters. She is Arjuna saying don't leave scars who leaves his scars